We've been in the upper room discourse for the last two chapters, chapters 13 and 14 in the Gospel of John, there on uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where he had been giving instructions and encouragement, uh, exhortation at times to his guys, to his men. Started out with 12. Remember, Judas went out into the night after Jesus identified his betrayer. Uh, we looked uh, at this. It, it's one thing, too, I would just point out is in John 15, if you look at it, if you have a red-letter Bible, there's not a black letter in it. Black letters for the narrative and for all that. Uh, it is unique in that it is all the words of Jesus, every bit of it. Uh, and as we go through a little bit of a recap here, looking at the Upper Room Discourse in chapter 13, we saw that Jesus began that by washing his disciples' feet and setting an example for servanthood in the kingdom. This is the, the stuff that drives the kingdom of God. It's not power authority, it's servant authority. So we looked at that, and then as we went along, he uh, remember he had the interaction with Peter there, and we're not going to go into it, but he, he talked to Peter, and Peter said, you know, you, don't, you can't wash my feet, and well, you know, then Peter, I don't have any part. Well, then wash all of me. He said, no, you're already clean, most of you. And then he identified Judas as the one who would betray him. And uh, he went on and washed each of his disciples' feet. I remember uh, just every time I study that, I think about what would the looks have been between Jesus and each man as he scrubbed the dirt from their feet and their lower legs. Uh, this doesn't have anything in the narrative, but it, we can look at it kind of in two dimensions as words on a page, or we can just imagine what it would have been like. Uh, so then he goes on and he says, look, I'm giving you guys a new commandment. Uh, remember, we looked at that, looked at contrasted the great commandment where Jesus said, love God and then love your neighbor as you love yourself because self-love is not hard for us. Uh, and, and yet he gives a new commandment. He says, I want you to love one another the way that I have loved you. Big difference. And, and uh, I talked about that. Sadly, that's one of the most violated commandments because especially uh, there's just no place in the church for people to rip and tear at each other. And I hear news of that from time to time and it just grieves our hearts because that ought not be so. We ought to be loving one another the way that Jesus loves us. Is that a high standard? Yes. Can we attain it? Not in ourselves but through the power of the Holy Spirit, yielding to his spirit, working within. Yes, we can, absolutely. So we looked at that, and, and then he predicted Peter's denial, and Peter was, oh, no, no, no. And we Remember, we blended the Gospels, and we kind of got an idea that Peter set himself above the other guys and all. Uh, and then we went into chapter 14, where Peter, he didn't even hear Jesus say, here's the new commandment. He's still hung up on, what do you mean you're leaving? And and, and, and so Peter is upset. He's very visibly, and all of the guys would have been, because they had been looking out at what was going to happen as Jesus set up his kingdom, and now they're looking out into darkness. I mean, they don't see anything ahead of them. And so uh, he, he gives Peter the encouragement of saying, look, Peter, I'm going, you can't come, but the reason I'm going is my father's house has many abiding places, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back that I can receive you to myself, that you can come to. So he, he's trying to give an idea to these guys of what's coming, but they still can't connect it because, for one thing, they haven't received the Holy Spirit at this point. He, remember, he says, uh, he's with you and he will be in you. And so he goes on, he talks about he, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and he's also the revealer of the Father. Remember, they asked him, show us the Father. Uh, and, and he said, have you been with me all this time? Uh, then we talked about prayer and what he says, what, what he meant when he said, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. And that's a, that's a tall order again. But when we really look at it, what does it mean to ask something in Jesus's name? It's a whole lot more than how we sign off on our prayers. Whole lot more. Um, and that's a continuous challenge. The Lord Check my heart. I want to be praying consistent with your will, consistent with your character, consistent with your nature. I want to be praying in a way that I'm trusting you to actually direct my prayers. And there's a mystery in that, folks. We won't understand it the side of heaven, but he says to do it, so we do. Then he talked about the helper, the paraclete, the one to come alongside. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans 
but I'm going to send the helper. Uh, speaking, of course, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God, the very Spirit of Christ. And he talked about that, that, that the Father and the Son would come and indwell us. Uh, and then finally, he leaves these guys. These guys were stirred up. He had sort of dropped the bomb there in the upper room, and they were still trying to recover. They were reeling. It, it, this didn't make sense. I, I shared with you folks over and over again, Take the cross, take the resurrection out of the picture as you read this and imagine the confusion and, and, and just the upset that these guys would be feeling. And so now, going into chapter 15, Passover's been observed. The new feast has come about. Remember, he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's in Luke 22. And, and, and then he ushered in the new covenant in his blood. And so now he's saying there's a new way that God is going to relate to man. It's no longer going to be through the nation of Israel. It's going to be through me. And, and we'll talk about that at length this morning. And so the troubled hearts of his disciples had been, they'd been peering out into this mystery of all that was beyond the here and now. And so Jesus, and they're asking him, they're saying, where are you going? And he's telling them, and they say, we don't know the way and, and give us a glimpse of God and now they're wondering why you manifested yourself to us and not to the world. And, and so he had patiently answered their questions. And he sort of hushed them into a, a quietness and a peacefulness as this night wore on, this five hours, the last five hours of the Lord's uh, freedom in, in that sense, in this, this five chapters that we're looking at. But now in chapter 15, he brings them back to the present and he grounds them in the here and now. And in verse 1 of chapter, I'm going to read the first five verses, actually. Uh, and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll unpack them a bit. So he says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father's the vine dresser. But, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus says, come, let us go from here. That's the last words of chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 14. Uh, before we get into this narrative, and, and there are many people that have speculations on where he went, and some say that he went down to the temple because there, these 60-foot doors to the temple itself would have been emblazoned with a golden vine. And so as Jesus comes and he says, look, you know, he identifies with the vine at the temple, uh, and, and all of that. And, and I remember being in the upper room and, and then taking, uh, I've shared with you guys before, that taking a trip out the side door, and there was a, some stairs. We went up the stairs, and we went up on the roof. And uh, I've got some slides here to show you. Uh, some of these I've shown you before. Look in the background of this slide, top center. You see the Golden Dome. That's the Temple Mount, and this is taken from Mount Zion looking down. Uh, remember, the mountains surrounding Jerusalem, uh, there was the Mount of Olives, which is in the far background up along the top there. Mount Zion, where this picture was taken from. And then there's Mount Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount is. And it's the lowest of the mountains. Uh, and, and God did that by design, that anywhere in the city or anywhere on the Mount of Olives where you stood, you could look down. And that Temple Mount in those days would have been absolutely prominent. Uh, the city would, have, would not have been anywhere near as built up as it is here in, in a modern photograph. But you look at the foreground, you see the big, sort of in the left center, there's a big domed building with a, a sort of a, it looks like an upside-down snow cone for a roof. It's a big lead roof on a, on a, it's an old monastery, a Benedictine monastery. And then down in the bottom right, or the bottom center, there's a small dome. Uh, the next slide shows it here. Yeah, okay, you got that up. Uh, that small dome down there, and, and it references where the upper room is. That's the upper room and where the temple is. And so they had to travel from Wherever they left in John chapter 14, at the end of the chapter, when Jesus said, let us go from here, they had to travel to the other side of the Kidron Ravine, which would be beyond the Golden Dome. 
Uh, it's not far beyond it, but it is beyond this golden dome, the Dome of the Rock, which is the Islamic deal there that's on the Temple Mount now. So that was quite a hike. Uh, and yet, what makes sense to me as we look at this, and we look at the roof, next slide, please. Uh, we look at the roof of the upper room, is that it was, if they went up there, it would have had fresh vines, uh, new growth. Next slide. And very often in Israel, they, um, yeah, there you go. Very often in Israel, what they did was they grew grapes uh, on arbors over their roof because that's where they spent, it's a very warm climate there. It's very much like Southern California. And so they would grow these grapes on arbors. And if they went up on the roof, there would have, it would have been a full moon. It was Passover time. Passover is the first full moon after the spring, um, yeah, equinox. I always get, ex I have to think equinox and solstice, but after the spring solstice, it, Passover is on the full moon. So it's Passover time. It would have been a brightly lit night, unless it was cloudy. But uh, so I personally think they went up on the roof. Nobody really knows, but it fits with the narrative here where Jesus says, I'm the vine, because there would have been fresh prunings. You have to prune those things every day. Uh, I was talking to Chuck Porter, and you could practically watch grapes grow. Uh, they grow so quickly and you have to be on them constantly because if you're not, you're going to end up with lousy fruit. We'll talk about that as we go. So when Jesus into this, into this picture, whether it's on the roof in front of the temple door or just walking through the city where there were grapes growing everywhere, uh, something prompted him to give this allegory. And, and he says, I'm the true vine. Uh, and this is the last of the I am statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus proclaims the name of God, the covenant name of God from Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, who shall I tell Pharaoh to, is sending me? And he says, you tell him that I am is sending you. And, and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this is rendered ego ami, I am. It's not lost. There's, there's one more statement that he makes when they arrest him. It's not counted among the profound statements, but it's simply a statement that he makes. And we'll get to that at another time, but uh, he's essentially saying, I'm the true vine. But rendered, the way it's rendered in Greek is interesting. It's rendered, I am the vine, the true. Now, that's maybe just a nuance, or maybe not. Uh, I tend to believe not. That when he was making actually two statements in this, I am the vine, the true, the genuine. Uh, that's what that means. It, and so we're going to look at that as we go along. It, but when we talk about the vine dresser, he says, my father is the vine dresser. He's the husbandman, or literally the one who cares uh, for the vineyard. He's the one who planted the vineyard. He's the one who owns the vineyard. He's the one who takes care of it. And Jesus is saying, I am the vine. And he'll say later in verse five, you're the branches. And that uh, and, and he goes into the whole thing. He uses this. He really expands on this as he goes. So this word vine dresser is used. It's also rendered farmer in 2 Timothy and in the, the book of James, uh, where God is referred to as the farmer, or he's referred to as the vine dresser here. So he's the guy that's over all of it. Remember we talked about Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father uh, were co-equal. Now, in position, the father is greater because that's how they set it up. They're not greater in power. The father's not greater in power, greater in authority or any of that. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. But you've got to realize here that as he sets this up, he's setting up the vine dresser as being the one in positional authority here. And that he is the vine and the, we, the church actually, are the branches. And so uh, I want to look at this though, and we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about vines. I, I, I really think that this is an interesting, it's a, it's a major rabbit trail from John, but it's worth it because we want to get the full counsel of the word of God as to why Jesus would make this statement. It's not just a useful allegory because he's walking past or he's looking at a bunch of grapes. Uh, the first as we look at this term, the vine, there are three vines in the Bible that are talked about. All right? The first is called the vine of the earth. And that is a malevolent vine. It's an evil vine. And when, when God talks about, through the word here, he talks about 
this malevolent vine, the vine of the earth, it's, it's the vine of evil that's that thread through humanity, through fallen humanity, where evil things and people in rebellion towards God, they're classified in this, in this way. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, Moses talks about, he's talking about rebellious Israel. He talks about the vine of Sodom. So that he's referencing all the way back to Genesis uh, and we see this thread that goes through the word of God that talks about the vine of man or the vine of the earth. In Revelation chapter 14, I'll read this to you quickly. Uh, he, in 14, 18, and 19, he says, And another angel came out of the altar. This is when the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth. All right, and we'll wait till Harvey gets there to, to look at that in more depth. But uh, it says in, in Revelation 14, And another angel came out from the altar who had the power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, that's another angel, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. You heard the term, the grapes of wrath? That's where that comes from. It comes from here in Revelation 14. The, 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 again, fallen humanity, the rebellious humanity is, is called the vine of the earth. And this angel thrusts his sickle in and he pulls the vine of the earth out and, and puts it into the wine press of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being poured out and it's being poured out on humanity, on unbelieving, unrepentant, unregenerate, rebellious humanity. That's the vine of the earth. The second vine is the vine of God the nation of Israel. In Psalm chapter 80, verses 8 and 9, uh, says this, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. So we see God's purposes for Israel was to be the vine of God, uh, to be the, the, his representation on earth. And in Isaiah chapter 49, I'm going to have a lot of scriptures here. I'll write, read the, the passages. You can write them down and then come back to them later. We're going to move quickly through this. But I, wanted, I want to come up with a, a, a very rounded idea of this, this concept of the vine. Because now we've seen the vine of the earth, and that's not of God, obviously. And now we're looking at the vine of God in Israel, because when God established her as a nation, he had a purpose for her. And we see that purpose in Isaiah 49. I'll read verse 3 and then verse 6. He says, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So God is saying, I want you to serve me, and in your service to me, your fruitfulness... I want to bring glory to myself. And so in verse six, six, he says, Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Israel, by design, by, as the vine of God, by God's design, was for them to be a light to the world, not just to the tribes of Jacob. The, the, so you have Israel, the nation, and then you have the Jews. He's saying, I don't want you, Israel, to just be the preservation of God and, and to glorify me in the Jews, but I want to use you with all of the nations of the earth. I want you to be a light to the Gentiles. And that was God's will specifically from the beginning. When he established them as a nation, that was what their job was to do. The last vine that we look at, the third vine in the Bible, is the genuine vine. I am the vine, the true and that's Jesus. And we'll look at that as we go along. I want to look at four things this morning as we roll along here. It's kind of a fast-paced uh, message because I'm packing a lot in. But uh, just bear with me, if you will, <clears throat> and we'll, we'll try to tag the bases. Uh, four things. The first one is the Father has always been the vine dresser. He has always... It's, we talk about the sovereignty of God. I was talking about that with the guys the other night. And essentially, I boil down the, the, the theological doctrine of the sovereignty of God is it's his ball, it's his ball game, he makes the rules, and you can play or not. That's really what the sovereignty of God boils down to. 
And so the father has always been the vine dresser. It's always been his vineyard. It's not anybody else's vineyard. It's his. And Israel had been the vine of God since her birth as a nation, as I mentioned. The second thing that I want to look at is Israel's rebellion. And what that rebellion resulted in was what the Bible calls wild grapes or bitter grapes. In Isaiah 5, I'm going to read seven verses from that. Interesting. Think about wild grapes, guys. Bitter grapes. As I mentioned, grapes need to be tended to. Vineyards need to be tended to. There's something that's really interesting that happens with grapes. If you don't prune them, you end up with a lot of leaves and little teeny berries like grapes. It, they, it doesn't bring the fruit to maturity because all the energy goes into the growth for the leaves. And they're beautiful. They're great. Like I said, in Israel, they use that grape arbor for shade in the summer and in the warm months. And yet, if you don't prune it, if you don't take care of it, and you essentially end up with wild grapes, that those which are not tended to, you end up with all leaves and very little fruit. And so that's part of this illustration that Jesus is giving. It's part of the illustration that God has given all along with Israel. He's calling them wild grapes. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and he also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good fruit or good grapes. But, oh, that word but, uh, I try not to use that word a lot because what it tends to do is cancel what's just been said. And that's exactly the case here. But it brought forth wild grapes. He's talking about Israel. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And I now, uh, and now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. And I picture the Lord with a derisive sort of edge to his voice as he speaks these things, because he's being very clear with his people, you're not doing what I designed you to do. You're to be a light to the nations, and you've imploded. You have just turned this into a self-serving, false god centered thing that I'm not in. He says, this is what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge. That would be what protected the vineyard from the animals. And it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down and I'll lay it waste and it shall no longer be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. And I will also command the clouds that they not rain any rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord... Catch this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Plain and simple. And the men of Judah, the Jews, are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And following here in Isaiah 5, we're not going to go any further on that. Uh, God pronounces six woes upon the nation. And he's condemning them for their fruitlessness, for their folly, for their rebellion towards him. Isaiah, or Israel is also mentioned as a fruitless vine all through the prophets. In Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 19, Joel chapter 1, and in Hosea chapter 10, uh, prophesying there that Israel is just living to produce fruit for himself. Not outward, but inward. So looking at that, I want to fast forward a little bit here. In the context of John chapter 15, here Jesus in the upper room, the last night of his earthly life, uh, he had been in town all week. Now he came in on Sunday, the triumphal entry. We looked at that, and and you know that's where we go with with Palm Sunday on Easter and all that stuff. But he that was when he rode into town on the donkey and presented himself as Messiah to the nation. 
The next day, remember in our studies in John, we, we took a side tour there and, and looked at when he was coming from Bethany to, to Jerusalem and he cursed the fig tree. Okay? And, and that fig tree was representative of who? Israel. He was cursing the nation. No longer will there be any fruit from you. And so three days later is when he's here in the upper room, but we're going to go back to that day after the triumphal entry. Three days before, Jesus is here in John 15, uh, perhaps on the roof, perhaps in some part of the town. Uh, and we're going to look at what's known as the parable of the vineyard. We had another slide before that. Oh, that one, yeah. Um, I put this slide together. I wanted to just kind of give an idea is of what God expected on the left and what Israel produced on the right because they really missed it. Uh, we're going to talk about them a little bit. And I totally agree with what Harvey said. God's not finished with Israel. And yet Israel stood condemned as a nation because they had not done what God had set before them to do. They had actually slain the prophets. They, uh, Jesus, when he, when he wept over the city, when he came into the city, uh, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you, you, you've slain the prophets, those that I've sent to you. And I would love to have gathered you as a hand gathers a chick under her wings, but you would not listen. And you missed the day of your visitation. And so here, this is the day after Jesus comes into town. Uh, and I would this is the third thing I want to look at is Jesus actually, he excommunicates Israel as the vine of God. He takes it away from them. And so, which sets the stage for John chapter 14. So we're going to look here in John or in Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to pick it up in verse 33 and we're going to spend a little time here because it's important that we understand what's going on and that this is all the stuff that influences Jesus's very simple statement. I am the vine the true. In Matthew 21, 33, he says, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Sound like Isaiah? Yeah. This is a well-known passage to the Jews in the first century. They would have known. Their hearts would have been quickened on this. And they would have known that where Jesus was going was not good. Jesus, as far as the context goes here, he's in the temple teaching as he says this, and the religious leaders, the Jews, the, the, the Pharisees, and the, the, the guys that were out to get him, they were trying to get him to execute him, uh, they have come to him, and they're the ones that he's speaking to in this. He's not talking to his men. He's talking to the, those who opposed him. And so as we look at this parable, we see the landowner, again, the, the, is God. The vineyard is Israel, and the vine dressers are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Remember, this is a parable. You can't make it walk on all fours. It's not going to line up on every point. Jesus told parables to make a point, and the point he's making is he is taking it away from Israel in this. Again, he sent other servants, verse 36, more than the first. I'm sorry. Ah, I lost my place. Okay, the vine dressers went into, and then he went into a far country. In verse 34, he says, Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they may receive his fruit. I think it's very interesting that the landowner had the right to expect fruit in due season. And the vine dressers took his servants, they beat one, they killed one, and they stoned another. Now the servants here are the Old Testament prophets in this parable. And they had been beaten, killed, stoned. And it, it, Jesus referencing to Israel's history of the prophets that God had sent to them. Those who would speak for God. Remember in Hebrews 1, it says, in, the last, in, in, in prior times, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and many ways. He used many prophets to speak truth to these people. And in, in this parable, he's saying, you know, every time uh, the landowner sent somebody into this vineyard that he'd leased out to the wicked vine dressers, that they would beat him, they would kill him. Verse 36, and again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. 
Now here Jesus, of course, is speaking of himself. And these religious leaders are standing there listening to this in the temple courts as he was teaching. It says, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. I, I've got to comment on that. I, I think about the folly of man-made religion. And, and essentially what man-made religion is, is when I decide to assert my will over God's. And, and I, I look out and I see on the religious landscape, it, it, men who are drawing big crowds. I sent Ron an article last night on one of them. Uh, they're drawing big crowds and, and they're just speaking lies. And essentially what you do when you do that is you put God into subjection to your deal. That's exactly why Israel was losing their status as the vine of God. So they say, this is the heir. Come let us kill him and seize his inheritance as though they could. That's the folly. Verse 39, so they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Interesting, it says they cast him out of the vineyard. Uh, it reminded me, and I don't know if there's a direct correlation or not, there probably is, of Hebrews 13, 12, where uh, the writer says, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He was cast out of the city. He was executed outside of the city walls. Uh, when we went to Israel, I remember looking at Golgotha, the place of the skull. You could still see the skull in the mountainside. And you look, here is the skull. And the, if you sort of pan across, the city walls are right over here. And they took him outside of the city. So uh, even in that point, Jesus is accurate in this parable. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? And so the religious leaders say to him, they say to Jesus, well, he'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Right answer. Jesus goes on though. So first to his men in John 15, the, it, 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 he, who would be the people that would be given the vineyard after these people thrashed it? Uh, and, and I believe that, that it, he's referencing here to us, to the apostles in the first century. He gave them uh, the power. He gave them the keys to the kingdom. And then to the early church, both Jew and Gentile, and ultimately to us. I am the vine. You're the branches. So Jesus said to them, verse 42, have you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builder re builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Interesting here, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which is exactly the Psalm that the people were quoting as he rode into town the day before. They were quoting another part of it when they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. And Jesus used the very same Psalm to, produce, or to pronounce condemnation on these guys. He's saying, look, the, the stone which the builders rejected, that's me, is going to become the chief cornerstone, and he will fulfill this prophecy. He would not be the one that would fulfill their political ideas when they said, Hosanna, save now, which is what that means, throw off the Romans. No, he was bigger than that. He had a far greater mission than that. His mission was to save us from ourselves, not from the Romans. And so as he quotes this, becoming the chief, chief cornerstone, they would have understood exactly what he's talking about. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, this is important. This is where he takes it away. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, what nation is he talking about? And I would submit to you that's a poor translation. The word, the Greek word is ethnos. Uh, and ethnos means a group. It means a set-apart group. And that is a reference to the church. He's not talking about, and, and the church including, and we'll talk about Israel, he's not finished with Israel. It got pretty rough for Israel here because they rejected Messiah. Messiah. 
And so as a result of that, the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles. And it's a beautiful passage in Romans where Paul says, you know, their rejection was for your good. But don't you look down your nose at them. God's not finished with them. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. So when he talks about this kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation or, or to a people that will bear the fruits of it. In other words, you're fruitless. You have this whole thing, and the whole thing, we've talked about it before, guys, it was all organized for their good. It was to bear fruit for themselves, as Hosea had said centuries before. So uh, we look at that and we say, well, you know, Lord, that fits with what we're looking at in John 15. Absolutely it fits. Jesus is prophesying here what he's going to tell the guys three days from then as he stood in that upper room or stood up on the roof or was going through the city. Verse 44, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, on this particular passage, it's an interesting, it's sort of cryptic sounding, uh, and I would have to go in and spend more time than I have to talk about their method of stoning in the first century. They'd build a scaffold that was twice as high as the person who was to be stoned, and if the person who was Uh, the victim of the crime that the capital crime that was the cause of stoning, if they would be given a rock and they would essentially cast the first stone. Okay. That's where that term came from. And so they would cast the first stone. If that didn't kill the person, then they would drop a large rock on him and finish the job. So that's what it's, it's a cultural reference here, but essentially what Jesus is saying is Judgment is coming. And there's no easier way to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He's saying, you know what? You reject me. Judgment is coming. The stone will fall on you and it will crush you to powder. In other words, you will not go through it. You can't get away from this simple reality that Jesus came to die for sin. And if you don't avail yourself of his gift, then this is what the outcome is. And he's telling these guys plainly, it's taking, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. And not only that, you're going to be judged. Very serious. Verse 45. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. I don't have verse 46 up here, but it says essentially that they wanted to kill him all the more at that point, but they were afraid of the crowds. So, They knew what he was talking about. And still, they would not repent. I think about the book of Revelation when the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth and it says, and there are people there that are still shaking their fists at God and they still won't turn. They still won't change. They see all of this evidence. And these guys had had three and a half years of evidence. And they still were hardening their hearts, still wanting to protect their thing because they... It was a very profitable deal, and they had no heart for God in this. They were the vine that was producing no fruit. They were the vine, they were the wild vine. And he was saying, you know what, I'm taking it away. It was a total fulfillment of what Isaiah talked about back there. So, interestingly here, after Jesus says this, he gives this parable, he takes it away, he actually pronounces eight woes on the religious people there in Matthew 23. So the question is, I mean, this is a very hard look at Israel in those days and throughout their history uh, because they were to be the vine of God, to be a light to the nations, to be the ones used to bring salvation to the nations. Is God finished with Israel? No, absolutely not. Is he finished with you? No. If you're here this morning and you haven't given your life to Christ, is he finished with you? Is he just going to run you off? No. Or we talked during communion about that being for the church. Well, there's a simple solution for that. Give your life to Christ. Sell out. If you're struggling in your walk, just ask him to fill you afresh. He does want to do that. He does want to stay fresh with us. He does want us to stay fresh with him. He wants us to be producing fruit. Talk about that as we go. In Romans chapter 11, the apostle Paul, who was a Jew himself, actually had dual citizenship. He was a Roman citizen and a Jew. 
he says this. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite and of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. You know, and if you've tried, as Harvey mentioned, um, when he was sharing communion, there are those out there that, and and it's a a doctrine that's growing in popularity in some circles, again, some aberrant circles that call themselves Christians that are not. And what they, it's called dominion theology or replacement theology, is is that you, you have to do an end run on Israel in order to make your theology stand. So you have to push it aside. But if you push it aside, you compromise the word of God because you cannot get around passages like this. So be careful, folks. If people try to talk to you or convince you that the church is the replacement of Israel, no, no. Jesus took their power as the vine of God and took it from them and put it upon himself, not upon the church. We're the branches. He's the vine. And now salvation is found Jew or Gentile only in one name, the name of Jesus. And so this passage, this parable that we're looking at actually refutes replacement theology because he takes their their status as the vine, as the one that would represent God to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and he takes it away from them. He excommunicates Israel as a nation and says, no, it's not coming through you any longer. It's going to come through me. The fourth thing I want to look at is Jesus, the genuine vine. The one who holds our very breath. Verse 2. Hey, we've got through one verse. (laughs) Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. that That it may bear more fruit. So he's talking about two different kinds of pruning here. Two different kinds of clipping. It's pruning away the stuff that's not going to bear fruit. Uh, I was reading up on viticulture a little bit, and, and actually the vines that uh, have dropped their leaves, and, and it's, now it's just a stick, they call them canes. And that's, they trim the, the, the dead weight off of the vine. Why do they do that? Because the energy is just going to go to these fruitless branches. And no, that's not how God set it up. He wants us to bear fruit. And the only way that we're going to bear fruit is if we're pruned. He's telling us about abiding in him, and he's going to get to that as we go along here, as we finish up. Uh, Essentially, it's saying if there's no fruit, who produces fruit in our lives? The Holy Spirit. So if there's no fruit, the Holy Spirit's not there. And if there's no Holy Spirit, there's no life. And if there's no life, he takes it away. It's that simple. It's, I think this is, people get very complicated with passages like this. And, and, and there's some that say taking away could be those in the parable of the sower who believe only for a time, and that's probably true. I mean, that would qualify as there's no life because that root never went down. Uh, it could be taking away, it could be those who identify with Christianity through a heritage. Oh, I'm a Christian. I remember reading a statistic years ago that there were 95 million Christians in the United States, and I just looked at that and went, yeah, right. Um, It'd be a lot nicer place to live if there was. Uh, But it it could be a reference to people that are superficially calling themselves Christians, but they're not because they've never transacted and they don't walk in the... the, uh, reality of the cross and the power of the resurrection, uh, a superficial so-called walk. Uh, I don't, uh, it's not our job to point them out, but I refer to that kind of a person as a make-believer, not a believer, kind of a make-believer. So is, is that, there's no life. But the, essentially what it is, is where the Holy Spirit's not there, there's not going to be any fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no life. If there's no life, Jesus prunes it. That's the point. So he takes it away. What he's talking about here, folks, is fruitlessness, and it's tied to faithfulness. If you've come to faith and you are devoted to him, you will produce fruit. Some 50, 
some a hundred times. You know, he, there's varying amounts of fruit. It's not measuring the fruit. It's are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing more fruit? Are you healthy in the vine? He says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. The Greek word here is katharizo. And what it means is to cleanse, to pur- pur- purge, or to purify. It, it, it means more than just clipping branches, okay? Uh, this word is, it reoccurs in this passage, and there's a, a very definite play on words in the Greek that we miss somewhat in the English. Uh, what it's talking about is that he is the one who purges, cleanses, prunes us. He's talking about the church. He's talking about you and I. And as we present ourselves to him, and as we walk with him, I remember I I actually dug out my old college Bible. It's all held together with duct tape and stuff. I dug it out yesterday and was looking at it. And and I'd mentioned to somebody this week, uh, and I I went back and I just read it kind of for old time's sake. And and in the margin, John 15, it says, clip, 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 because that's what he does. He prunes us. It's often not pleasant. It's often painful. It's often stuff that we didn't ask for, but he allows to come about in our lives. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, uh, the writer says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You could look at chastening as synonymous with pruning in the context that Jesus intends it here. That if you are part of the body of Christ, God will not only allow, he'll actually engineer circumstances through which will stretch you, that will challenge you, that will cause you to have to endure in trial. He doesn't do it to beat us up. He does it to purify, to cleanse, to purge in our lives, to catharizo. Um, That's what he does. So in verse 3, he says, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. The word clean there is the same word. Interesting. You're already pruned positionally. Now, when we come to Christ, he declares us holy. He declares that he justifies us and he sanctifies us. Big doctrines. Get to them when we get to Romans. Probably we're going to go next, maybe. But... um, the point is, is he is the one that does the work. Whose work is it here? It's his. All he wants us to do is to yield to him. And as he does that work, to persevere, to, to press through when we're going through trials because he's working in us godly character. That's his intent. That's what he's doing. He's causing us to think more like Jesus, to be more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus as we go. And we don't come by that naturally. We come by that through the working of the Holy Spirit as he prunes, as he cleanses, as he purifies, as he purges. So he says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. It's the same thing he said in John 13 to Peter when Peter said, no, don't wash me. He says, well, then you don't have any part with me. Well, okay. And he says, you're, you're already clean, most of you, but not all of you, because Judas was still there. It's the same word. Again, it was the same word he used back there as he used for pruned here, as he used for clean here. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So think about it, folks. The vine in the natural doesn't implore uh, the branch to abide. It just does. When he's talking about abiding here, it's to, to remain united with him by a living faith. That's what abiding is. It's not about doing, it's about being. I look in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives the Beatitudes. They're be attitudes, not do attitudes. And he says, abide in me. And that's the result of what happens when you abide in him is those things that he talks about there. Go look at it uh, yourself. But truly abiding in him is simply remaining united uh, to him. He's saying, be united to me by a living faith, by his spirit, through his word. Always. 
Verse 5, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Whose work is it? I praise God it's not mine. I praise God it's not yours. It's his. He says, simply abide. Now that's something I can do. That's something I can sink my teeth into. Uh, you know, it's not about having a list of, 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 of do's and don'ts. It's not about, uh, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian. You, you have a lot, of, a lot of rules you've got to live by. No. That is completely missing the point. It's not living by rules. It's producing fruit. How do you produce fruit? You have life. You abide in the vine. And he does the work. You cooperate with the work that he's doing. And why is all of this? Because he loves you. Because he loves you with a love that is beyond your ability to, to grasp, and yet it's a sturdy, it's a, it's a powerful, and it's a genuine love that he is the vine, the true. He is the one with whom we have to do as branches. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Just abide in me. It's not about being busy about the kingdom. It's about abiding in me. Oh, there's things to do. But those are the things that, by his spirit, he compels us. He, he, he leads us onward. And, and yet, this whole thing, we'll talk about it more next week, about abiding in him, is just such a beautiful concept because it's not about this whole big deal that they had in the law. This would have been amazing. It would have been new news to these guys because the law was do it and live. Grace is it's done. So love. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh, Lord, thank you for the way your word links together. Uh, I just, uh, I marvel, Lord, as we look at the vine this morning, we see from Genesis to Revelation these different aspects of the vine and, and that you, Jesus, are the true vine. And Lord, we're grateful for that, that there's no confusion in that. You, you transferred that whole thing onto yourself. Uh, there as you spoke with these people at the end of your earthly life, and that we can count on these things. They're there for us to see, to adopt, to apply to our lives. And as we apply it, Lord, let, let, let's not apply your, your word to be busy about the things of your kingdom, but let us apply your word to, to know the depth of your love, to know the depth of your devotion, and to know, Lord, that as we go through tough circumstances that often we don't understand, that you're there and that your hand is upon us, and that you simply beckon us to yield to you, to abide in you as we go through. So give us the ability to persevere under trial. We pray, Father, you would just continue to bless us, pour out your spirit on us. Lord, let us be fruitful for your kingdom, and let us glorify you in the process. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning. I pray, Father, that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, just instruct us as we go out from here. We commit ourselves afresh to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen.